Welcome, boys and girls, to the eighth episode of Your Buddy John. Hi, John Mueller here. Hope you all had a great 4th of July. Kind of a strange one in 2020, huh? COVID-19, protests, riots, looting. Oh, boy. Well, I did my best. I posted a new song I wrote about factory workers in the USA losing their jobs. A little blue-collar kind of... Uh, tip of the hat from me, and uh, I've actually raised over $300 so far for AmeriCares from this song. If you'd like to uh, check it out, go to johnmuellermusic.com and click on shop, and you'll see uh, it uh, pull up there. It's called Right Here in America. Well, ladies and gents, my next guest is a uh, legend in the music industry. He had a number one hit in 1987 called At This Moment, and boy, what, what a great song, and he sings it uh, impeccably. He uh, has won a Grammy Award for writing the liner notes in a Ray Charles uh, CD and uh, has a star on Hollywood Boulevard. He's a writer. There's a documentary made about him. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. So let's get to talking to him right away. Put your hands together. Good and loud, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Billy Vera. Welcome, Billy. First of all, thanks for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. Um, so you were born here in Riverside, California. Is that correct? Yeah, my dad was uh, stationed there during World War II. He was a uh, first lieutenant uh, bomber pilot, B-24s. Wow. Yeah. And then you ended up in New York, is that correct? You grew up there, right? Yeah, yeah. He got he got hurt before he uh, was about to be sent overseas. Some stupid kid threw a rock through a car window and blinded him in his right eye. Oh, and so we went to uh, Springfield, Missouri for a year for him to recover. And then uh, they gave him his job back in Cincinnati. At, uh, he was a, a radio announcer sure, uh, on a station called WLW there in Cincinnati. So we were there for five years. And, and after that, we moved to New York when I was uh, in time for second grade. So Wow. And um, did you... How did you get started with music? Did you uh, study an instrument when you were young? or? Well, my mom was a singer. Oh, okay. Um, she had been a singer in Cincinnati on WLW, and then when we came to New York, she learned how to sight read, uh, and she got a job with the Ray Charles singers, uh, the original Ray Charles, the, the, the white guy, on the Perry Como show, and singing on Perry Como's hit records and stuff like that. So I was always around music. Yeah. But uh, when rock and roll came, you know, I said, wow, I want to do that. You know, <laughs> I saw Chuck Berry on American Bandstand. I said, I want to be him. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. And um, when did the uh, songwriting bug kind of uh, get you going? At a very young age. I think I was no more than 14. Wow. And I started fooling around trying to write the songs like the ones that I listened to on on the radio and on records. Yeah. And uh, you know, it just kind of kind of came naturally to me. That's great. My parents gave me a few piano lessons and drum lessons and guitar lessons and I so I learned, you know, the chords and everything and and uh yeah. And then of course the band that I was in, we you know, I got uh, in a high school band, and uh, right after high school, we made a record, and it 
it made a little noise around the country. Yeah. And one one side of it uh, was a song I wrote, and uh, so the record company says, "Hey, you got any more songs? You know that uh, we like that one." I played him a couple other songs, and they got it recorded by Ricky Nelson. Wow! And it became a, a, a hit record for him. What was that song, Billy? Called uh, "Mean Old World." Oh yeah, sure. And it was one of his last hits, you know, uh, in his first early years. And so all of a sudden, you know, in, in, in New York, if you, you know, it was a cottage industry back then, you know, it was, it wasn't the big gigantic business that it is today. Yeah. So if you had a record on the charts, I mean, everybody on Broadway knew who you were Wow. and you could, you could, you know, doors were open to you easily. And so I started peddling my songs around, you know, they, they would give you you know, $35 for an advance and pay for a demo. And then their job was to, the publisher's job was to try to get your songs recorded. And uh, and then I got offered a job as a staff songwriter. For which record company? Or was this a publishing house? or? Yeah, called April Blackwood Music. They were owned by CBS and Columbia Records. So it was a, it was a legitimate company, which was very lucky for me. Yeah. Because the, 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 it's the little companies that always steal from you. Yeah, yeah. Because they, you know, they have to steal from you just to pay their rent, whereas the big company, you know, there's, there's nothing in it for them to steal from you. Sure. You know, so uh, so I, I had a little, they gave me a little office, and, you know, they, they, owned, they had the second floor at the famous uh, 1650 Broadway, uh, which was where all the all the publishers were. Yeah, and um, we were on the second floor. And I, I, they they put me with another writer, a guy named Chip Taylor. Oh yeah, Wild Thing, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, there's a kind of a funny story about Wild Thing. We well, I, before I tell you that one, the the first song that Chip and I ever wrote together became a hit for a girl named Barbara Lewis. Sure. On Atlantic Records. So one night, I was about to go home because I had a gig with my band up in Connecticut. And uh, and he said, you got to stay tonight, man. There's this group called The Wild Ones. They're going to record at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, and they don't have enough songs. He said, anything we write will get recorded by them. <laughs> God, can you imagine? So so I said, Chip, I can't stay. You know, I, you know I'm, I'm the singer if I don't make the gig. The band can't play. So I left and went home, up and did my gig. And the next morning I went down and I, I to the office. I said, uh, how'd you do? Did you, did, you, did you come up with something for the wild ones? He said, yeah, you know, I, I, I knocked something. I, I, you know, I, I kind of finished it in the studio while I was recording. And, and, and the record came out and went nowhere. And it was wild thing. And then about a year later, uh, this British record on Wild Thing came in. By the Trogs, the, right? The Trogs, yeah. And, and he played it for me. He said, what do you think of this? I said, holy mackerel, man. I said, that, that sounds like a number one record to me. <laughs> and, and of course, it became not only a number one record, but, I mean, his biggest money-making song. Yeah, know? a lot of people covered that one, that's for sure. Oh, my God, yes, yeah. Including Jimi Hendrix and a whole lot of people. Yeah, yeah. 
So yeah. So anyway, after we we had we, we had this hit on Atlantic Records by Barbara Lewis, that gave us entree to them, and so we 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 decided to write a duet for a couple of Atlantic artists, you know. Yeah. And so we we made a demo of the song, and uh, we took it up to Jerry Wexler up there, and uh, he just loved it. He said. Uh, he said, uh, tell you what, he said, get rid of the girl on the demo. He said, and uh, I'll record you on Atlantic Records. I said, wow. I mean, to me, that was a dream come true. I can imagine. Good Lord. Because all my favorite artists were on Atlantic, the Drifters, the Coasters, sure. Ray Charles, Laverne Baker, Joe Turner, I mean, all the greats. And uh, so I, I was friendly with Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. We played in this club every weekend. And and on Fridays and Saturdays they'd have hit record acts come in and and do two shows, and we would back them up. Sure. And play two dance sets. And uh, Patty and them came up pretty often because they were an inexpensive act at the time. Well, one of the girls in the group, Nona Hendricks, uh, had a voice that I felt would blend with mine. So I called her up down in Philadelphia. I said, "Hey, you want to make a record with me?" Because they were on Atlantic at the time also. So she came up and we recorded this song. And then their manager got into the act and he said, well, you know, man, if they have a hit, then she might quit the group. And Patty and them said, well, no, no, no. Let let them do the record because, you know, we don't have a guitar player and our music is really difficult and Billy really plays guitar good and, you know, plays our music the way we want to hear it. Yeah. And the manager, the manager said, no, no, no. So then we had to audition about 20 more girls. And they all sounded like they should be singing Stephen Sondheim songs or something. <laughs> they were just totally wrong for the song. Right. And, and just when we were about to give up, Wexler called up and he said, uh, we, we just got this girl, Judy Clay. She's a cousin of Dion Warwick and she's really good. Why don't you take a listen to her? So she came over to the office and auditioned, and we liked the way she sang. Of course, she was about 14 months pregnant at the time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and and she had kind of an attitude, you know, because, you know, everybody else in the family had had sort of made it. You know, Dion and Dee Dee Warwick and Sissy Houston was an aunt. And... uh so they said, well, yeah, she sings great, but you think you can handle that attitude? I said, I said, yeah, I got a sister like that. You know? <laughs> so, so we recorded it with Judy, and then Jerry, you know, loved the record. He put it out, and and uh, we became a hit record act. You know, a song called "Storybook Children." Yeah, I was reading that in your uh, bio. Pretty yeah. Cool. So that got, that got us. Uh, it became a hit. Unlike most records, which become popular outside of New York, this one took off in New York first, and uh, and and we got an offer to play the world famous Apollo Theater. Wow! Yeah, which was a dream come true for me. I can imagine because I had been a customer there many times. Right. So, what are you like? Are you like twenty years old at this point, or something? Or I was about well, this this was, I was about twenty three. Wow. Yeah, Judy was about five years older, 
and a great singer. It's incredible. What's it? What I must have been just amazing to be on the Apollo stage with a hit song. And <laughs> were you touching? Oh man! Were you just like standing there in cloud nine or what? Oh yeah. Well, this was this was about a month after Martin Luther King got killed. Oh wow! So there was riots going on across the river in New Jersey. In sure. New Jersey. So they were kind of. They didn't know I was white. See? Ah. So. When we when I got to the theater, they said, "Oh, uh, so they they put us on second. You know, there's like nine acts on this show. Yeah, and second was not a good spot. They just, you know, because they they didn't know how we'd go over. Right, how they would respond to us. You know, white guy singing with a black woman. You know, what I mean, ooh, yeah, that could be that could get ugly. You know, so so we 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 went on and and we we killed it. You know, that we they just loved it. Nice." But when I first went out there on the stage, I could hear him gasp, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a murmuring in the crowd, right? Yeah, you know, 1,500 people in the theater, and I hear him going, that's him? That's him? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So we went over great. So so the, the theater manager was a guy named uh, Honey Coles of the famous dance team, Coles and Atkins. And he said, uh, he said, you know, I'm going to change up the show. I'm going to. I'm going to put you guys on before the star. He says, because ain't nobody going to follow you two. Right. And so that became our spot, you know, and uh, we nice. became very popular in, in, at the Apollo. They had us back again. In those days, it was seven day a, a week gig, five shows a day, you know. Five shows a day at the Apollo? Yeah, it, well, it's not as hard as it sounds. I mean, because right. all the opening acts only did about 13 minutes, you know, 12, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. three songs. The star did maybe a half hour at the most, so it wasn't as rugged as it sounds. As anybody that's listened to your hit song um, at this moment, um, your voice is incredible. So did you, did, were you taking vocal lessons, or how did you uh, develop this voice? Well, my, you know, I, I, I sang the way I naturally sang, but my mother, you know, she 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 gave me a couple of lessons uh, at her her vocal coach. Oh, okay. To, to be how to breathe properly and you know uh, how to you know sing from the stomach that, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But but mainly uh, you know it was just the way I sang. You know, sure. Uh, and and I, I I worked you know five six nights a week in nightclubs. So I, uh, with my little band. So it's good practice, so right? I, I had plenty of, plenty of experience right, you know, at a young right. age. Plus, from from having that gig, playing behind all the great performers and all the hit record acts, you know, I got to see what worked and what did not work. Sure. You know, by watching them. And uh, so it was like it was like a college education in stagecraft. You know. Wow. So did the, the Atlantic Records people, um, did, they, did they say, hey, we want this kind of a song? Did they, did they guide your songwriting at all, or did you just kind of like... No, no, not at all. But we, we had another, uh, we had a follow-up hit record called Country Girl City Man. Yeah. And, and just at that point, we were at the Apollo for a second time in July, and, uh, and Jerry Wexler called me backstage and said, listen, uh, you know, Judy's 
was signed to Atlantic through Stax Records. Mm. And our our distribution deal with Stax has just ended, so you guys can't record together anymore, contractually. Wow. He said, but don't worry. He said, I found a song for you. He said, it's on a Bobby Goldsboro album. I'm going to send it up to the theater. You take a listen to it, and if you like it, he said, I think it's a number one. I think it's a hit record. He said, uh, if you like it, I'm, I'll record you. When do you finish the Apollo? I said, well, we finish Friday night. He said, okay, I'm going to book our studio for you at 9 o'clock on Friday morning because I want to get this record out fast. So it was called With Pen in Hand mm-hmm. by Bobby Goldsboro. And it was a great, great song. And so we went in on Friday morning. We recorded the song. Or the great Arif Mardin wrote the orchestra orchestrations. And over the weekend, Atlantic had test pressings pressed up and mailed out. So that by Monday morning, it was at every radio station in the country. That's incredible. Well, that's how fast an independent company could work in those this those days. Remember, this was before Warner Brothers bought Atlantic. So they, they, you know, and Jerry Wexler was one of the great record men of all time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's just you know, incredible, I mean, though, Billy, where, you know, today you have all this easy stuff with the digital capabilities of uh, recording a song very fast and stuff, but I don't know anybody yes. that can record a song and within two days have a test pressing of it. I mean, <laughs> that's just incredible. Well, he was afraid that, you know, the song, because he knew the song wasn't, that Bobby Goldsboro's version was not going to come out as a single. They, 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 uh, he had a friend at the at Bobby's record company and who told him that. Yeah. So, but, but since it was such a great song, you know, it was only a matter of time until other people got a hold of it. Sure. And he, he you know, he, he's very, Jerry was a very competitive guy. <laughs> he wanted to be first. So, you know, we were first and we got the hit, you know. That's fantastic. Was this about the time that you uh, wrote a song that Dolly Parton made into a hit as well? No, that was a long time after. Oh, a long time after. Okay. Yeah. You know, things started to change around this time in the music business. And that kind of music that I was doing, you know, that sort of blue-eyed soul kind of thing was yeah. going out of style. And and I, for the next, mm, I'd say nine years, I all through the 70s, I couldn't figure out how I was going to fit in. Wow. And you're still living in New York at this time? Yeah, still in New York. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, I couldn't really be a heavy metal guy that was not me and uh, yeah. you know disco was you know not, all musicians hated disco yeah exactly and i wasn't going to be one of those wimpy you know jackson brown kind of singer songwriters yeah you know, that wasn't my style either so i i couldn't figure out what to do and, and i kept working survival gigs with the band and trying to make a record now and then but i couldn't get anywhere and uh until around 1978, I was playing this terrible gig at a Ramada Inn you know, <laughs> oh, in New Jersey. And during the week at, those, at a Ramada Inn, you know, you're playing to like three lonely businessmen you right. know, who hate you because the waitresses are talking to you instead of them. Yeah, yeah. You know, so this one night there's like three people in the place and 
I, I come off stage and, and the waitress says, there's this fellow over there or his wife would like to, a word with you. Uh, so I go over there and talk to him. He says, uh, hi, my name's L. Russell Brown. I wrote tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. <laughs> thinking, well, how nice for you. Yeah. And uh, he says, you know, Vera, he said, uh, he says, uh, you're, you're a great singer. You're one of the greatest singers I ever heard. He said, uh, and you're a terrific songwriter. He said, but you, but you never make any money. He says, me, I make a lot of money. Nobody respects me. <laughs> he said, I got an idea. He said, we ought to get together and write together. He said, he said, I could teach you how to make money, and you could teach me how to get respect. Yeah. I think I'm talking to Rodney Dangerfield here, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I started going over to his house, you know, in the daytime. And he was a very energetic guy, you know. We, sometimes we'd write two, even three songs in a day. You know? Wow. Yeah. And uh, and he, he was a very successful songwriter. And uh, so one day, like everybody that's successful, he he wanted to do something else. He wanted to produce. Sure. So he get he gets a gig producing Nancy Sinatra. Nice. And, and so one day he says, I, I need a I need a fourth song for her on the session I'm gonna do with her. He says, uh, see if you can start something. I gotta go pick up my wife at the beauty parlor. We'll finish it when I get back. So while he was gone, I, I, I said, What the hell do I write for Nancy Sinatra? <laughs> oh yeah, she got this famous father. Yeah. So I'm I'm writing lyrics like uh uh, I love my daddy, but it really don't matter what my daddy might say, you know, things like that. Yeah. And uh, so I finished it before he got back. And he says, oh, my God. He said, this is a number one song if I ever heard one. So so we, we put it down on tape and, and he plays it for Nancy and she hated it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. So Larry, now he's pissed, you know, he says, uh, he says, man, he says, you got to do something with this song. He says, prove me right. Prove her wrong. He said, I'm telling you, I get chills when I hear this song. I said, okay. So my friend had this little country band. And uh, there was a girl singer in there. So we went in and recorded it with her. But, you know, she was lazy and she didn't really learn the song properly. And So everywhere we took the, the, the tape, the demo... They said, love the song, hate the girl. You know, wow. The everywhere. Finally, the last guy on my list was this guy, Charlie Koppelman. And he said, love the song, hate the girl, but, that was the first time I got a but. Yeah. He said, we're recording Dolly next week. He said, give me the song for her, and uh, I'll guarantee it'll be the single. So I don't, I didn't trust him, so I said, we'll put it in writing. Yeah. Charlie. I said, give me some money. Yeah. So I figured he's going to give me a couple of hundred dollars, right? So he has his girl write me a check, and I didn't even look at it. And I was there with, I had, I was there with my little girlfriend at the time, and we're going downstairs in the elevator. And she says, give me that envelope. And she opens it up, and she looks, she says, holy shit, he gave you $2,500. Wow. That is a lot Which of money. Was a back lot then. of money in 1978. Yeah. And I said, "Wow, I guess he's serious." <laughs> <You know? laughs> so sure enough, uh, you know, Dolly cut it, and uh, and it ended up being uh, 
my first number one song. Wow. Did yeah. That, did that open a lot of uh, Nashville doors for you as far as your songs? Or? Not really. Uh, you know, I, I was... But what had happened in the interim, my old manager, who was a degenerate gambler, <laughs> had gotten into trouble in New York with the wrong people, Uh-oh. owing them money. So they said, got to leave New York and never come back. Wow. So he moved to California. So he called me up and he said, man, I'm, I'm broke. He said, uh, uh, I got to make a deal. He said, you got any songs? I said, well, I got a couple of songs here. He said, well, put them on tape and send them to me, man. Maybe I can get you a record deal uh, here in California. So he calls me back, uh, I don't know, a week later. He said, I, I, I didn't get you a record deal, but I got you a publishing deal with Warner Brothers. Nice. He says, only trouble is they don't believe you're alive because my career had been dead, you know? <laughs> he says, they'll, but they'll fly you out there because they, they don't trust me and they'll make sh- just to make sure you're alive. Right. So I, you know, I went out to, came out to California and, and I, I played them uh, songs that were on the tape. One of which was at this moment. Wow. And I, he had already heard it. The, the guy, Eddie Silvers, was his name. And uh, I, he had me play the song in front of his whole staff. And I turned around after I finished at this moment, and he's got tears coming down his face. Wow. And I said, holy shit, this song must have something. Right. Never, I, I, I never thought it was a commercial song. You know, because it, it didn't have a hooky chorus, you know. And it, it's just and got, it such a, a got such a beautiful feeling to it and just a beautiful... Everybody relates to it, you know. It's got that universal... Well, uh, now I know that, but at the yeah. time I didn't, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, But, uh, you know, and it, it had a lousy title, you know. I mean, I, I couldn't think of what to call it. It didn't have an obvious title. Yeah. But it obviously did something to this guy who had been... You know, he had been in the business forever. Eddie, he knew songs yeah. like the back of his hand. He was the, the head of Warner Brothers Music, you know, the biggest publishing company in the world. So, uh, you know, that was that and made a deal where it gave me, you know, so much money a year and I'd write only for them. Sure. And, uh, you know, but by that time, the, the business had changed again. And most artists were recording their own songs. Yeah. You know, it, it, it wasn't easy to get songs recorded. And he, he, he told me this ahead of time. He said, listen, he said, uh, you know, things have changed. He said, whereas once the publisher's job was to, you know, go to record companies and producers and artists and get, get your songs recorded. He says, we don't do that so much anymore. He says, what we're going to do is support you you know, make you a, give you enough to support yourself until you get yourself a record deal or, or some situation where your songs can get recorded. So just for kind of for fun and something to do on the weekend, I ran into my old bass player and he said, why don't we start a band, man? You know, that's, we can meet girls and, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and have something to do on the weekend. I didn't know anybody out here. Yeah. And uh, so we kind of 
he said, let's start a band. And this was all his, he said, you, you always wanted to have a horn band, you know, like Ray Charles. Yeah, yeah. Little Richard Fats Domino. He says, let's do that. And uh, he said, Who, we're not really doing this for the money. Was, you know. So we did it. And we were making like 6 to $7 a piece a night, you know, with a 10-piece band. <laughs> and, uh, and we, you know, we, we got this job at the world-famous Troubadour famous club here oh yeah i've been there a few times sure yeah and the guy gave us a job playing uh, on monday nights at midnight you know the worst night of the week late at night but my manager said that's great he said because this way no advertising no flyers up and down laurel canyon right no no ads in the paper nothing he said let the let the, because the, the the opinion makers the the in crowd they like to discover you on their own. Yeah, they like to think that they know something more than the average Joe. Sure, you know it's, a, it's an ego thing with them. So he said, if they if they like you, he said, then you know you got something. So within he said, it'll probably take about six weeks before you those people start coming around. Well, two weeks later, it was lines around the block. The word got out on us that fast because we were different. You know, I mean, at that time, you know, bands like the knack were popular, you know, four piece four guitar pieces, bands. Yeah, sure. And, and there was nobody playing music with horns, you know? Yeah. And so, man, I mean, every Monday night at midnight, it was sold out. Wow. For a year. And I'd see all these guys from the record companies coming around, and I'd be smiling and clapping and stomping their feet, but nobody was reaching for their wallet. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, because they're, you know, they're like everybody else that, that's in those positions. They're afraid to make a mistake. Right. They're afraid <laughs> to make the first move, right? They're scared for their job, yeah. So after a year of this, every Monday night, we got three offers in in one week. Wow! And so we we, we got this record deal, and we we, we made a live record because you know my manager says, you know, I think the only way to capture the, the greatness of this band is is to capture what's going on live on stage. Sure. So we. We went up to the Roxy, which is another club, a bigger club. Yeah, Sunset Boulevard. Yep. And we recorded the album live at the Roxy, and we got a little hit record out of it. We got, I can take care of myself. Nice. They, they sent us to Tokyo and to, to be in the Tokyo Music Festival. And because uh, the, the, to- the company was owned by a Japanese label. And uh, they wanted us to do at this moment rather than I can take care of myself. And so we did that, and we won the gold prize. Wow. And so that came out, at this moment, came out as the follow-up. Now it's 1981 now. And just as that record came out, uh, the head of promotion, who was really good, a guy named Bernie, uh, he, he got in a fight with the, the boss of the company and, and quit. Oh man. So there's nobody to promote the record. So it went like number 79 and that was the end of it. Oh man. 
And shortly after that, the Japanese pulled the plug on the company. And so here we are without a record deal. And now I'm 36 years old. I'm too old to be a rock and roll star. And uh, so, so Chip's brother was this actor named John Voigt. Oh, wow. Because Chip's real name is James Wesley Voigt. I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah. And they went to my same high school. They were a few years older than me. But Anyway, so John comes in the club, the Troubadour, one night. And he says, man, he says, I, I, uh, I never saw a, a singer do what you do on stage. Yeah. I said, what do you, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, most of these guys, they get up there and they hey, L.A., how you doing? Come on, let's. And, and they, they decide what they're going to make the audience feel. I'm going to make them laugh. I'm going to make them cry. I'm going to make them get horny. I make, make all, all these things. He says, you don't do that. He says, you just lay it out there. It's organic uh, expression of your emotions. Yeah. He said, what you're doing up there is what all the great actors do. Hmm. He, said, he said, you should you should come to this acting class that I go to. I said, oh, John, I don't want to be an actor. Yeah. You know, I'm not good looking enough, you know. He says, <laughs> he says, no, man. He says, I'm telling you, he says, you could be great. So, he, you know, very, very convincing. You know? Yeah, yeah. Persuasive. And he, so I, I went. And the acting class was given by this guy, David Proval, who you might remember from uh, the movie Mean Streets. Oh, wow. Or... Uh, he was in The Sopranos later. And it was really an interesting class. You know, and it, I didn't get it right away, but after a while I started to catch on. And so after the record company went out of business, I started picking up little jobs as, as an actor, you know. Sure. And I'm sort of eking out a living between playing with the band and the occasional little acting gig. Yeah. You know, living in a little apartment, and uh, and one day the phone rings. It's what they call the golden phone call. <laughs> the guy says, "My name's Michael Whitehorn, and I produce and write a show called Family Ties." Yeah. He said, "We were at the club the other night, and and we heard you singing this song that we think." be nice for a, a, an episode we have coming up in the show. And I said, great, what, 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 what's the name of it? He said, I don't know. <laughs> You'll remember that I had a lousy title on the song that nobody ever remembers. Right. So I, I knew right away it had to be at this moment, so I hum him a few bars of it, and he said, yeah, that's the one, that's, that's fun. I said, well, call Warner Brothers. I said, they uh, they, they have the publishing on it, and, uh, you know, just license it from them. Yeah. So, so they did. And uh, and I'd had songs on TV shows before, you know, but usually it's, you know, you make a few hundred bucks, and that was it. But this time I got mail. You know, they, people wrote letters to NBC. and Wow. And, Called up NBC. What's what's the name of that song? Yeah, who did that song? Right. Who's the singer? You know. So I said, "Wow, this song must have something." So I I I called up a few people that would still get on the phone to me at record companies and 
to try to see if somebody would let me re make a new record of it. And nobody, they, nobody was interested. Wow. Even though you're telling them that it's on a major TV show, nobody was no, interested. No, that it wasn't enough. Wow. And so then one day I was having one of my friend Richard Foos, who owned Rhino Records, the reissue label. Yeah. They put out all the oldies, you know. Sure. And we'd have these periodic lunches where we'd argue over arcane things like, uh, you know, whose version of Mustang Sally is the best one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> stupid conversations like that. So, you know, I, I told him the story about family ties. I said, you know, I said, how many records do you need to sell to break even at Rhino? He yeah. said, oh, we have low overhead here. We probably could break even about a couple thousand copies. I said, what if I promise you I guarantee you 2,000 sales. I could sell them in the clubs if I have to. He said, sure. And, you know, he only did it because he liked me. Right, right, right. I don't think he thought he was ever going to make a nickel. So I I compiled this album, and I just picked the songs that the audience liked the best. And I made one album out of that. So by the time they got it out, man, we missed the reruns of Family Ties. But as luck would have it, the following season, the girl breaks up with Michael J. Fox's character on the show, and they they play the song again. Wow. Well, this time, the story of the song, Boy Loses Girl, yeah. is the same as the story of the episode, Boy Loses Girl. And so the audience just related to that, and, and just the reaction was crazy. I mean, NBC called up Rhino, and they said, man, we got more phone calls than any time in the entire history of the network for this song. And, and suddenly, people are calling radio stations. Right? Where can I buy this record? Yeah, because by now, this time, the, the operators at NBC knew who the singer was and what the name of the song was. And people are calling radio stations and they're calling record stores. And and suddenly Rhino's getting orders for this record. <laughs> and they, you know, they, they never had a, you know, they're, they're, they're not in the contemporary business. No, they, they were, were a the, reissue label. So yeah. They, they were an oldies business. Yeah. yeah. Which is much more relaxed business. Yeah. Right. You know, it wasn't as, uh, you know, got to do it now. So, next thing you know, man, I mean, this record's moving up the charts, man. We're jumping over Bon Jovi, jumping over Madonna, jumping over. And the next thing you know, we got the number one. At 42 years old, I got the number one record in the country. Wow. You know, and, and my life changed. I can imagine. What did, what, did it, uh, what did it feel like to have a number one hit on the radio at that point? It must have been really... Uh... Oh, it was thrilling. Yeah. You know, I mean... I mean, it was as thrilling as the first time I ever heard myself on the radio back 20 years earlier. You sure. Know? And only this time, now my phone's ringing. It started ringing at 6 o'clock in the morning and didn't stop until like 2 o'clock the next morning. Wow. I mean, it was just like everybody wanted a piece of me. Yeah. And luckily I had an agent, you know, uh, a friend who was an agent anyway. And uh, and so he starts getting calls, you know, 
can he come on this TV show and can he come on that TV show? And next thing you know, I'm on American Bandstand. Wow. <laughs> Dream I had as a kid. Yeah. You know, when I was 14. And then and then I got uh, The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson. Wow. What was that like? You know, I ended up doing The Tonight Show nine times. Cause, wow. Uh, the, the guys in the crew and a friend of mine who wrote Johnny's monologues told me, they said, you know, you're you're Johnny's second favorite singer That's after really Tony cool. Bennett. Wow. He loves you, man. That's so cool. Nine times. It's well, a, that's it, a lot of time yeah, to go in there. It was really cool. So, I mean, all this stuff was happening, you know, and uh, yeah. Wow. Now all these record companies, because I wasn't signed to Rhino. It was just a reissue of, you know, my other records. Yeah. So, I, you know, all this, suddenly, you know, these guys that wouldn't get on the phone to me before are calling me directly. <laughs> so, you know, I I went with Capitol, and we made an album for them, and, you know, it, it didn't really happen in any big way, unfortunately. So, you know, things just kind of moved on and moved on, and, and, but other other side projects came up. Sure. Like my friend, uh, Michael Cuscuna, who's probably one of the top jazz producers in the in the business. He, uh, you know, we, we, we stayed in touch for all these years. And he said, uh, listen, we just signed Lou Rawls to Blue Note. Wow. And, uh, you know, I thought it'd be cool if you and I produced him. You know, you're you're great with songs. You know, you and and you know, I don't. I usually produce instrumentalists, and you, you know, you you might be able to relate to him from as a singer to singer. So we 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 made a we went back to New York. We we took Lou back to New York because his manager said, uh, "Yeah, don't record him in L.A." It, it, uh, his friends will keep coming by the studio and get in the way. Right. So we took him there. We made a great album with him, and uh, he cut, you know, some of my songs, and and I picked a lot of great old songs for him. And uh, we got all these great musicians, you know, Richard T. and you know, Cornell Dupree and Stanley Turrentine and Hank Crawford and nice. Fathead Newman. I mean, all these wonderful musicians all wanted to help Lou. In fact, we even got Ray Charles to do a duet with him. Oh, sweet. Diane Reeves. So the album comes out, and it goes to number one on the jazz charts. Fantastic. And it brought his career back, because he'd been making these crummy, what I call Vegas disco records. Right, right. That that weren't selling, you know, at all. And uh, and so, because... Bruce Lundvall, the guy that ran Blue Note at the time, was a great record man also. And he said, let's just take him back to his roots, you know, the kind of music that people originally loved him for. That's Jazz, a smart idea, but, smart, yeah. You know, forget forget trying to compete with the kiddie music. Yeah. You know, you're not competing with Janet Jackson here, you know. Right, right. So, which was a very smart move, I take no credit for it. But uh, it worked, and we did two more albums on Blue Note that also went in the top five. 
And, uh, you know, so suddenly Lou was back doing what he was great at again. That's very cool. Is he a nice guy to work with or was he? Um, in yeah, he was, he was nice. You know, he, he, he respected us and we, you know, uh, you know, we were told his manager had told us, said, listen, if he trusts you, you know, you won't have any trouble with him. Right. So he evidently did. And, uh, yeah, yeah, we had a good relationship with him. And then about five years l later, um, uh, the manager called me again and he said, listen, he said, I, I can't get Lou a record deal. You know, wow. I said, you know, I said, Lou, what? You're kidding me. Lou Rawls, you can't get him a record deal. So I was doing some reissues at that time for Savoy Records, the old jazz label. Yeah. I said, let me see if Savoy would be interested. He says, you got any ideas? What? I says, yeah, what about this? I said, I'm not opposed to doing a gimmick. I said, what about Old Brown Eyes Sings Old Blue Eyes? Ooh, I like Do it. Do an album, him singing just all Sinatra songs. Yeah. So, you know, Savoy went for it. And I got my friend Benny Golson, you know, the great jazz saxophonist, who's also one of the great arrangers and composers, to write the charts. And we went over to Capitol Studio and we did it. Uh, did this Rawls Sing Sinatra album, which was, ended up being, unfortunately, the last album of his life. Oh, wow. Yeah, he died a few years later of cancer. But but the Rawls Sing Sinatra, you know, was on the charts for about six months. And then Bonnie Raitt did one of my songs. Oh, wow. She she, she called me up she when she had that Nick of Time album. Yeah. Which was really the first really big album she ever had. She had been on Warner Brothers for 15 years and left there owing them a lot of money. Right. And uh, so her manager told me that, uh, said, you know, really nobody wanted her. And I said, well, are you kidding? Bonnie's a great singer. How could yeah. He said, well, the only label that would take her would be Capital, and they gave her a lousy budget and no front money and she ended up making Nick of Time, which became a really big album. Yeah. So she called me up after that and said, man, I, I got to make another album. And, I, you know, I don't write much. You got any songs for me? So I I, I like the way she sang ballads, you know. And uh, so I, I put together a couple of ballads. And I was talking to Michael Cuscuna again back in, New York, and his wife happened to be eavesdropping on the phone call. Sure. And she said, why don't you send Bonnie that little uh, that Cajun song that you wrote? I said, really? I said, you know, it's kind of, you know, about a southern people, a kind of redneck kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And I don't Bonnie's the type of person that could relate to those kind of people. She said, no, I, I really got a feeling, she, you know, she, just throw it on the end of the tape and see if she likes it. So I did. And of course, that was the one she picked. Because <laughs> she already had a great ballad on this follow-up album. Yeah. Uh, I Can't Make You Love Me, which is one oh, of the yeah, great yeah. That's a good female song. performances of all time. Yeah. And But there happened to be a slot open for an up-tempo song. So I... I 
she, but she wanted to play the guitar part, which my guitar player had played on the demo. But he, but he, but he, he played it in this odd tuning. Yeah. You know, tuned the guitar to a G chord. And I said, Ricky, I get over to her house and teach her how to play that lick. <laughs> if you have to move in with her, teach right, her that right, lick. Right. So he did, and and uh, so I figured she's going to record it. And then I get a phone call from her. She says, I can't get my band to play the same feel that's on your demo. I said, well, maybe your musicians are too good. I said, you know, maybe you need that kind of dumb sound that we get. You know? <laughs> she said, well, can you come over and show them what you mean? I said, sure. She said, bring your guitar. So I, I get my Telecaster and and uh, and I I had them play the song down and and yeah I was right they were too good they were playing it too they were showing off sure didn't have the feel yeah so I said to the drummer I said look just play one and three on your bass drum and nothing else you know don't even touch your sticks and I said to the bass player something similar and then uh, and then I played my little dopey guitar part. And, and in essence, I produced it. Wow. But with, for no credit, but I didn't care. You know, I just yeah. wanted the song on. So, so uh, it, it ended up making it to the album. A song called Papa Come Quick. And uh, so I, I was back in New York and I, I was talking to Bruce Lundvall, who's, all, aside from running Blue Note, he was also... The, the head of Capitals New York division, which is the label Bonnie was on. So I, I was I, I was all excited. I said, "Oh man!" I said, "Bonnie just cut Papa Come Quick." Uh, you know, man, she just sold three million records. I'm, I'm going to make some money. Right. He, he said, "Don't get too excited." He said, "Nick of Time was a fluke." You know, uh, she'll you'll be lucky. She'll probably sell about four hundred thousand on this follow-up album. You know, we don't expect her to, to sell much. I said, about oh, 400000 I'll take it. I'll be happy with that. Yeah, right? Well, the album ended up selling 5 million copies. Oh, my gosh. It became the biggest album of her career. You know? Wow. Yeah. So, you know, that that was a, that was kind of it. And she did a great job, just, yeah. just like Dolly did, you know, on, on my song. Sometimes you don't like the way people do your songs. Yeah, I can imagine. With At This Moment, you know, people tend to over-sing it. Sure. You know, they, it's an it's a emotional song, so they, they get too dramatic. Right. And instead of letting the song do the work for you. Yeah, it's a fine line, right? I mean, because uh, the way It you, sure can be, yeah. The way you sing it, it is so authentic that uh, the emotion... Just like you said, it comes from the song and uh, and your and the way you genuinely feel when you're singing it. But uh, you're not it just you're not overdoing it. Yeah, it just tells the story, man. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, you know? and I'll tell you, to, to my su happy surprise, some years later, when Michael Bublé recorded it, he didn't oversing it. Nice. And he ended up selling about ten and a half million records. No kidding. Wow. Oh, yeah. That album was huge, man. Wow. 
In fact, he, he did two versions of it. He did a, a, a studio version, and, a, and they put out a, a live version. Wow. So it, it doubled the income from that song. That's fantastic. So I, yeah. I, I got to ask you, Billy, how, as a songwriter, are you one of these guys that like sits down every morning and writes for, you know, 20 minutes to three hours? Or are, are you, are you, are you, are you one of these songwriters that's more, uh, uh, it comes to you like periodically, the inspiration? Well, when I was a staff writer, yeah. I did that. Yeah. You know, I'd go into the office and, you know, your boss would come over and say, oh, uh, the Drifters are recording next week or Tony Bennett's recording. See if you can write something for them, you know. It was like that. But once I didn't have that that obligation yeah. anymore, then I got lazier. And and as 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 time went by and it was more difficult to find artists that needed songs. Sure. Uh, I I don't know what set in on me, whether it was a depression or whether it was like, oh, what's the use? Right, right. Kind of a feeling, you know, I, I wrote less often. Mm-hmm. And uh, although I, I, every once in a while, I'd, I'd, I'd get a, I'd get a blast of, of several songs, you know, in a row, wow. you know, over a period of weeks, and and there was a period in the mid '80s, right prior to when at this moment hit in '87, that I wrote a bunch of really good songs, and uh, but they weren't for other people, you know, generally. Right. And luckily, when Lou Rawls came along, he ended up cutting seven of my songs over the period of time we were together so that was some outlet for those sure you know and then and, but, and then recently I, I I had a bunch of these songs laying around for all these years and I said I started listening to them I said boy these are good songs you know see one of the things that Chip Taylor taught me the most important lesson I think he ever taught me was he said don't don't just write trendy songs right. for today. He said, because a trendy song will have no value a year from now. So true. He said, he said, try to write songs that you can picture people singing 20 years from now. Yeah, great idea. He said, that's where you make your real money. And so I, I always kept that in mind when I tried to write and, uh, and so I, I listened to these songs, and, you know, 20, 30 years later, they didn't sound dated. No, they hold up, yeah. So I, I went in, I said, you know, these songs need to be documented. And uh, I went in with my own money about a year ago. I got the best L.A. musicians I could get. And, uh, and I got this good little studio. And we went in, and we made a, 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 an album. Sweet. And I'm really proud of it. What's that album yeah. called, Billy? It's called The album is called Timeless. Timeless. And you can get it on Amazon or CD Baby and all. Sure. But there's some things on there that, that are among the best stuff I've ever done. Yeah, you're proud of it. It sounds good. I'll definitely check that out. Are you do you yeah. write uh do you write on guitar or piano or or does Mostly it... I've always written on piano mostly. I I have written on guitar. 
I wrote I, I wrote the Dolly song. I really got the feeling on a guitar. Do the uh, do the lyrics come to you first, or is it a kind of a blend of the of music? And kind the... of a blend. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, what I do, I think. I mean, if there's a, a way of doing it, I'll bang on the piano until I can find a, a, a combination of chords that I haven't that I think I haven't heard before. Yeah. You know, because I, I I hate songs that sound like that are predictable. Right. Right. I, I won't mention any names, but there's a there's a couple of songwriters, one in particular. That man, I mean, when when one of her songs comes on, that, that she, she's a writer, she's not a performer. Yeah. And one of her songs comes on, man. I say, I, I mean, you just know what chord it's going to next. You know what the next rhyme will be. I mean, right, right. Pretty and I don't want to. I didn't get in this business to write songs like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you can you can learn. That's a skill. That's not an art. Yeah. You know, that's a craft. Uh, and I just had, I've never had any interest in, in writing something that I didn't feel was fresh and, and unique and different and I could be proud of. Yeah. You know, not just proud of making some money off it. I, I understand that, and I have a certain respect for people that make a lot of money writing those kind of songs. Yeah, yeah. But I don't want to be one of them. Well, like you say, those songs probably won't, be sung by people in 20 years from now, you know? And uh, Yeah, man. So. You know, I mean, at this moment, it will, will always have, make income. It's, 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 it's reached a point where it's become a standard, you know? Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful song. I just uh, was watching a couple of different uh, versions of you doing it on YouTube, and um, oh. there's one of you, I think it's like, it looks like a, Maybe it's the Roxy or something. It looks like a small club or something. But um, man, is it? It's just that's a letter perfect performance I've ever seen. One. It's just oh, uh, thank you. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful production. There's one I like a lot. If if you, if uh, it's at the Wiltern Theater. Oh yeah, I saw that, but I didn't I didn't click on that and, one yet. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's and the way that came about, it was a salute to songwriters. You know. Nice. I was on the show and some other songwriters. I didn't even know they were doing video of it. And so, but I, I didn't use my band or they didn't, they had a house band there that had to play for everybody. Yeah. So we rehearsed in the afternoon and then came the show and the conductor counted it off too slow. Mm. And I said, oh, man, what do I do? I had a split-second decision to make. Do I stop him and make him do it at the right tempo? Or do I just go with it and see where that takes me? Right. That's when your acting chops come. (laughs) That's right. You know, because you're thrown up against a a new situation. Yeah. And then how do you, the actor, uh, uh, respond to that? So I did that, and so I'm singing it at this slower tempo, and it, boy, it, it really worked. And uh, and and the, the the applause of people went crazy. It was all people in the business, you know. Yeah. Years later, on Facebook, this woman, um, what they call, friended me, you know. Yeah. And and she, we we got. 
talking, and she said, you know, I I produced that show, like the Wiltern Theater you did, and I, I filmed you. I said, really? I never saw that. She says, yeah. She said, and and it's, as it turns out, she was one of Sinatra's girlfriends. Oh, wow. No kidding. And so she said, she said, one night when Frank came over, I played him that tape of you singing that song. And he made me play it again and again and again. Wow. And he said, he said, my God, he said, this is one of the, what, who is this kid and why is he not the biggest star in the world? Wow. He said, he said I, this is one of the greatest performances I've ever heard in my yeah. life. He said, and every time he came over to see me, he'd make me play him that tape. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't believe it. I said, why didn't I know this when he was still alive? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> So I could meet him, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Because I and, and it wasn't the. I always thought that 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 wouldn't that wouldn't be a song that he would like, because he was a stickler for grammar. Mm. And there's one line in there that is terrible grammar because you just don't love me no more. Oh right, right, sure. But can you imagine? It, it wouldn't work if I said because you just don't love me anymore. Right. It wouldn't work melodically, you know. But I, I figured he would hate that. You know? <laughs> well, he's probably but apparently not taken by that performance. Yeah, I see in the notes you got your uh, you got your own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at the corner of uh, Vine Street and uh, right in front of the uh, Capitol Records. Yeah, tower. right up by Capitol Records Tower. How yeah. cool is that? How, how, what, what year did that happen? That was 1988. I, I, I'll tell you, it was a real shock to me because. You know, I was kind of embarrassed by it, to tell you the truth, because that was thanks to Angie Dickinson, wow. who nominated. What happens is they, they somebody nominates you. Yeah. And 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 uh, she had been on Carson with me, and we had met that way, and uh, we got friendly. She and I. Yeah. And uh, she just believed in me, you know. She, I said, boy, I said, I, I, I don't know, man. I'm afraid people are going to just say, why him? Why him? Why not Chuck Berry? Why not all these bigger <laughs> names? Yeah, yeah. You know, don't have stars. And why him? He's he's not a big enough name to rate that. And I said, I, this could really, you know, embarrass me. You know, people say hurtful things. Sometimes. Sure, sure. And she said, "Listen, let me tell you how it works. Someone nominates you. In this case, me, and then it goes before the the Chamber of Commerce of right. Hollywood, the city of Hollywood. They vote, and they vote based on whether your fame has helped the city of Hollywood." Ah. In other words, you could be a big Nashville star or a big Broadway New York star, and, and you might not get a be. Uh, that might not be, you might not be the appropriate person for a star. Sure, but but look at you. She says you 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 you, you recorded in Hollywood. You made movies in Hollywood. You've made television shows in Hollywood. You've made records in Hollywood. You know you played the, the nightclubs. You played the big places in Hollywood. She said, you have contributed to the city of Hollywood. Yeah. 
and that's what they will base. That's what they based your eligibility upon yeah. being awarded this star. Yeah. On. So I understood it. I said, I, I don't know that other people will understand it so much, but uh, okay. Sure. I can accept that, and and it was really cool, you know, because they let you pick where you want it. Wow! And I said, well, I'm going to record for Holly for Capitol. I said, can I get as close to Capitol Records as possible? And they they so there I am. So cool. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really a a great honor, you know. And you uh, you've done some. Uh voiceover work too and uh, apparently you're the voice oh. for the AMPM Mini Mart commercials since 1999 that's pretty yeah, cool yeah man wow my 21st year with them how did that uh, come to be did you just kind of stumble well, into well I was them? doing a radio show just for free yeah on a, on a college station here in LA playing old records I, you know I collect old records I, I got two bedrooms full of old 45 I, I love that stuff I love it yeah, and so I, every, every every once a week I would I would do this show, and you know it got really popular in town. So one day I get to the st- station, and there's a note in my mailbox. It says uh, he's got an interesting voice. You believe him when he talks. Would he be interested in doing voiceovers? Well, at the time, you know. I wasn't making a lot of money in music. Yeah. And I had this expensive actress wife. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't and, they, all and, the actresses are expensive, yes. Well, this one was. Boy, she, she's one of these people that, that spent like about 15% more than she earned, you know. Oh, geez. Consistently. So I was desperate for money. I, I'll, I said, I was, I'll try anything. Yeah. You know, my dad was an announcer. Maybe, you know, I could do it too. So I go in there, and they, they, and the first job they got me was for Nissan. Nice. And, uh, and boy, my phone started ringing, man. And, and I get, I can sort of get one after another after another. Next thing you know, I'm doing all these commercials, and I'm doing uh, network promos. On I did all the comedy promos for CBS shows. Did that for five years, and nice. I was making hand over fist. I mean, the most money I ever saw in my life. I mean, way more than I ever made in the music business. Wow. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I bought my house for cash. You know, no mortgage. Just man. from the voiceovers. Yeah, from voiceovers. Wow. Man. Yeah. So it, it it turned out to be a, a lifesaver, to tell you the truth. It's great. It's great you were able to like do all different facets of the entertainment business like this. You know, I, I know it's uh, sometimes it's hard just to get work in one of them, but it seems like you were able to, you know, do acting, performing, singing, writing, and uh, voiceovers. That's really great. Well, I figured out at one point that the age of specialization was over. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, right? It's and just... that if I wanted to make a good living, I, I, I knew I wasn't going to be a huge star. You know, because I was 42 years old by the time I get this number one record. Yeah. And that, you know, it's a, it's a young man's game. Sure. And and I figure the more different, I can do a lot of things well, so why not do them all, you know? I remember my mother said to me, she said, if you're going to be in showbiz, remember this. She said, it's a, 
business of peaks and valleys. Yeah. She said, one year you're going to make a bundle, and the next year you're going to make nothing. She said, so always live below your means. My dad told me that too, yeah. <laughs> greatest, right? Yeah. That's the greatest advice you can give anybody giving going into show business. Yeah. Always spend less than you make. Yes. It's very helpful. <laughs> and and so I was prepared and I lived it too, up and down through show business. So I figured if I'm doing five different things, one of them's gonna do well this year. Right. And another one's going to do well next year. Sure. They, they won't all do well at once, but at least I got a better chance of making a, a decent living if I'm doing, if I got several different irons in the fire, so to speak. And so that's that philosophy has worked well for me, thank God. That's great. You also kind of ventured out. Uh, with uh, publishing your own book about a, a memoir called Harlem to Hollywood, released in yeah, yeah, 2017. Well, yeah, well, people, well, people, you know, have been bugging me. you got so many great stories. Why yeah. don't you write a book? Uh, I couldn't think of an angle. You know, so I, I, I procrastinated. And then, uh, and then I, they just kept bugging me. So I finally just sat down and said, oh, I'm just going to tell the story. You know, and uh, it's called Harlem to Hollywood. And, uh, you know, we, we managed to sell it to a publisher, and and uh, they gave me a nice little advance. And they put it out and been very well received, you know. And on the strength of that, I got an offer to write another book uh, just this past year called Rip It Up, The Specialty Records Story. Oh, nice. Specialty Records was the record company that had Little Richard and yeah. early Sam Cooke and Lloyd Price and all these great, great, was the, one of the great rock and roll labels. Oh, yeah. The rhythm blues labels. So I, I had done a lot of reissues for Specialty, and, and so I had made copies of all these union contracts and all the, the correspondence between the owner and the artists. Neat. So I, I had all this information that enabled me to write a very accurate book. Yeah. Plus, the owner of the company, the guy that owned the company, Art Roop, he had 102 years old. He's still alive. Wow. And he's sharper than you and me put together. And I'm still friends with him. So he, you know, he filled in all the blanks, you know, for me. And, and actually, he wrote the foreword for me, too. So That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, that was a lot of fun to do that. And now I got a novel that I'm going to I'm going to self-publish. Oh, okay. Is this a uh, what kind of story is it? Like a um... Oh, that's that's a good question. It takes place on September 11th, 2021. 2021. Okay. Yeah. 20 years after yeah. the World Trade Center. And it opens up with uh, our hero, Johnny Santoro, who's a guitar player, nice. 65 years old. Nice. Who's still playing guitar for Bonnie Raitt. And the night before, they played a gig in Austin, and he, he met this 19-year-old, beautiful little rich girl from Connecticut. And she came back to the motel with him. 
And on the TV, we hear Shepard Smith saying, you know, 20 years ago today, I was the one who announced the terrible tragedy at World Trade Center, and I have the sad duty to announce today that the city of Los Angeles has been destroyed by a nuclear bomb. Wow. So that's how it starts. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like so a, it uh, goes, sounds like this project could be, to be turned into a movie, if you ask me, Billy. I don't know. It may be too crazy for the movies, even. It's, <laughs> called, it's called A Dollop of Toothpaste. <laughs> nice. I like it. Yeah. When, do you, when do you expect that to be out? Well, we probably can get it out. I, I want to get it out before before the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got some, somebody. I got somebody designing the, the book and the cover and everything. Cool. So it'll it'll be one of those things. It'll be on Amazon, and it's I'm real happy with it. So very cool. In 2013, yeah. you won that Grammy Award for Best Album Notes for the Ray Charles box set Singular yeah. Genius, the complete ABC singles. Did they ask you to to write that since you were such a good uh, music historian, or how did that come to be? Well, I, I, yeah, I've written notes for over two hundred different CDs and box sets right. over the years, and uh, so that yeah, I had, in fact I had done notes for about six or seven Ray Charles CDs over wow. the years. So I'm kind of the go-to guy for Ray Charles most of the time, and so the guy that was Lou Rawls' manager. He was working with the Ray Charles estate, so he asked me to, you know, he thinks I'm this great writer, so he asked me to, to write him. So uh, I did, and, uh, and you know, I, I had been nominated for Grammys before. Sure. For, for a Ray Charles box set and for a thing called the R&B, the Rhythm and Blues box, and... Uh, you know, but this was the first time I actually won, you know, so I was, I was thrilled because, you know, I've always been like a late bloomer, you know, when I was, a, when I was 22, man, all my friends had gold records, you know. Wow. And I didn't get a gold record till I was 42. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had the last laugh, though. You got to look at it that way. Well, yeah, man, you know, late <laughs> bloomer. And, and my friends had, Gram oh, a lot of my friends had Grammys and I didn't have one. And so now I got one, so. Very real, cool. Real happy with that. It's just, it's actually was thrilling. I can imagine. You know? Yeah, just. Uh... So my date was this little actress friend of mine, Augie Duke, terrific little actress, and uh, the the girl that was supposed to do her hair showed up late. Yeah. And so, and this friend, this fan of mine, he's a he's a limo driver. And he came and surprised me with a Rolls Royce. <laughs> oh my gosh! So, anyway, by the time they did her hair, we're running a little late, you know. So he's driving like crazy to drive this big old Rolls Royce down there, downtown. Yeah. And we get there, we run into the theater, you know. And we were literally just at our seats, and and my knees were bent as I was about to sit down, and they called my name. Wow. Good timing. And, and, and so I, I, I ran down up the aisle, you know, to the stage, and she's following me with her little cell phone, 
She says, oh, man, you won. You fucking won, baby. And, you know, and, and all the people in the audience are laughing at us. You know? <laughs> and, and, I, and I get up to the stage and on the podium, and, and I'm out of breath, you know. Yeah. And I'm going, holy shit. <laughs> you know? And now the audience is laughing even harder at me. You know? <laughs> but it was, it was a great thrill, I'll tell you. You know, I mean, some people... I, I have some friend, one friend of mine. He, I said, "Where do you keep your gram?" He says, "Oh man, I stick it in the closet. It don't mean nothing." Uh, but I, I don't feel that way. To me, it's, it's like you know, it means acceptance. You know, oh yeah, that's a. It's not everybody in the world that gets one of those. That's for sure. Well, you know, when when at this moment was a hit, um, I knew some of the guys that were on the committee. You know, the Grammy committee. Yeah. And and a couple of them, they called me up and they said, "Man, they said, this, they said, you know, we all wanted you to win best song and best record of the year." Yeah. They said, but unfortunately, the Grammy rules wouldn't permit it because it was it has to be a new record. Oh, of and, course. And sure. that was a five year old record. Right. Re, it was a reissue. Right. So it didn't it it didn't qualify according to the rules. He said, but you know, um, he said, I don't, we we want to tell you that everybody wanted you to win because you know we were all plugging for you, man. Wow. And I, 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 I it kind of was some consolation. Yeah, know? no, that's cool. And then years later, I said, gee, we should we should have they should have entered it as a best reissue of the year. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> We didn't think of that. So, folks out there that are listening, you can get a lot of Billy's uh, great things he has on his website, BillyVeraVer.com. And uh, there's some some music there and books and um, lots of great stuff. And um, also, you can check out this documentary made about him on Amazon. And, yeah, that's uh, on. That's called Harlem to Hollywood. Also, yeah, that, that sounds yeah, really fascinating. Yeah, we got some cool people in there. Dolly's in there. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Dion Warwick is on there. Nona Hendrix, Mabel Great. John, Richard Roundtree, Shaft. You know, wow. Got some yeah cool friends have came and said nice things on there. And in fact, there's even some footage that this kid took when when Judy Clay and I were played the Apollo Theater. And he, he was like about 18 years old at the time, and he had his little camera in, in the theater with him. And and any kind of Apollo footage is rare because oh, people yeah. just never thought that music was important enough to document. Jeez. But here he had it, and it's in color. And, and so that's, we were really lucky to get that piece of footage. So so the book is called, my memoir is called Harlem to Hollywood, the movie is called Harlem to Hollywood. and. Uh, the album is called Timeless. So yeah, definitely check those out. And um, you're still uh, occasional. Well, of course, no, nobody is right now. But um, you still perform around uh, Los Angeles too with your yeah uh, about about once a month. You know when when uh, when COVID ends. Yeah, we'll be working with the Beaters again. You know, sometimes I work with a big band, a big eighteen piece band, which is a lot of fun. Where do you perform at, Billy? Because I'd like to come see you. There's um, we replace 
at a place called Vitello's out in the valley. Oh, I know where that's at. Yeah, the old, uh, the yeah. famous Robert Blake place. <laughs> yeah, I call it the Robert Blake Memorial Room. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. I sometimes I work there with the beaters, and sometimes I'll bring the big band in there. Okay. And for the if people that like big band music, I got one called Billy Vera Big Band Jazz. Oh, nice. That's that's on Amazon too, and uh, I did what what I did was a tribute to all the great black songwriters of the 1920s and 30s. Got and some 40s. Fats Waller on there. I don't have Fats Waller, but I got uh, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, oh, sweet uh, James P. Johnson. Nice. Oh, yeah, I got some Billy Strayhorn. Nice. Yeah. Gotta check Buddy that out. Johnson. Very cool. And then, uh, have you ever played at uh, Herb Albert's place over? Um, it's a cold. Uh, you know, people have asked me to play there, but it's it's not a big enough stage. Ah, okay. I, I love the I love the venue. I a friend of mine comes in from New York and he plays it with a trio there, and so I go to see him and he always drags me up on stage to sing a song or two. Nice. But it's a beautiful club. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I sure long for uh, where we can all get out and see and hear and play music again. It's uh, it's yeah, so, so weird to be sitting at home for uh, gosh. My last show was in uh, March, so it's it's God, it's, wow, it seems like a long time ago. But um, it's just been weird. Uh, I feel like I don't know. It's it's I just don't feel like I'm uh, contributing anything right now because I'm not able to perform and bring joy to anybody. So it's uh, I'm just been working on songs and um, writing and. Uh, Working on a music video, doing your podcast, man. Doing that's, the podcast, that's, and uh, that's, that's all I can do. That's an important thing, you know. If you, <laughs> you, you know, keeping the helping you keeping the music alive, other people's music alive. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's all I can do. Yeah. And um, but man, what an honor to talk to you. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I have to thank Maria Richwine for uh, for uh, informing me about uh, that she knew you and everything, and was able to reach you. Oh, thank so. you. And, uh, but she was in that acting class, by the way. That's where we met. Oh, is that right? Wow. Uh huh. Wow. That's where, yeah, we met years ago there. Such a nice lady and um, and talented yeah, too. Yeah, give her my love. I sure shall. I will uh, look forward to all your stuff there at your website, Billy BillyVera dot com, and uh, we look to we like to hear more from you, uh, songwriting and um, everything, because um, you you're uh, got your hands in a lot of different things. So we look forward to more output from you. And uh, again, please visit BillyVera.com. Billy, thanks so much for coming on today. really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure, Billy. You take care now. What a great guest. What great stories. Very cool. What a career. Ladies and gents, you can visit our schedule at WinterDanceParty.com. Or if you want to hear some of my original music, go to johnmullermusic.com. New album coming out soon. And uh, I want you kids to take care out there. Stay safe. And we'll see you on down the line. (laughs) 